Well, the, uh, the story is told of an old English village that had a tiny chapel with stone walls, and it was covered in traditional ivy. I'm not sure if the story is true or not, but over the entrance were inscribed the words, We preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. Four words. And they, they did just that. Back in the day, they preached Christ with all power, preached the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, preached the gospel with conviction. But over the years, things began to change. The ivy began to grow, and it obscured the final word in the inscription. So now it read, we preach Christ. We preach Christ. And they did. They preached Christ as the great teacher, the great humanitarian, the great example for living. Well, as the years went on, the ivy continued to grow, and eventually it covered the word Christ, so that the inscription above the entrance now read, We preach. <laughs> and they did, you know, eloquent preaching, gifted preaching, preaching about a social gospel, preaching about economics, preaching about life and love, preaching book reviews, preaching about everything. But they weren't preaching Christ and Him crucified. Again, I don't know if that's a true story, but it certainly illustrates an important problem in the church today. After 2,000 years, what once was unique and powerful and distinct blends in and is now indistinguishable uh, from the world. As we continue our survey through the book of Acts, we come to the year 51 A.D. The church is now 18 years old, uh, not too different in age from our local church, Plum Creek Chapel, as we celebrate 20 years next week. And with Christianity approximately 18 years old, we see in Luke's historical account that the church continues to make a difference. It continued to stand out. Christians were different. We saw in chapter 11 how the disciples first to be, began to be called Christians at, in Antioch, which became the home base for Paul and Barnabas and now Paul and Silas. But Christians are God's envoys, and that was their central theme. They understood the nature of the new life that they had found in Christ and the importance of it, that they were lost and on the road to hell. They were under the penalty of sin, and that the only hope they had was to place their faith in the one who took their penalty on the cross, Jesus Christ, trusting in Him and Him alone as the only one who could save them. And then, as His representatives, having trusted in Him and become part of the family of God, they couldn't wait to get out and fulfill his mission and share the gospel with other people. And as Christianity grew and continued to expand westward, as we looked at last week, so too did its influence. It was making a difference, no doubt about it. People noticed uh, this group that was called Christians. They were turning heads. You know, as I was thinking about that, you know, I was trying to think of a way to kind of illustrate just how different the early church was from what the church at large has become today. And now we know Paul's 
letters in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy that the apostate church is just a sign of the times. It's a, it's a fulfillment of prophecy in many ways. Uh, but there are obviously are, uh, is a remnant, always is a remnant. Uh, and there is a small number of churches and believers that are still holding on, first of all, to the inerrancy and infallibility of, words, of God's word and to the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel and preaching about the soon coming of our Lord, which are three key things that are hard to find, getting harder and harder to find today. But as I was thinking about how to illustrate this, I thought about, you know, I, I've always made use of visuals in my teaching. I can still remember when PowerPoint first came out. I was an early adopter. In fact, at the time I was in academics and I taught PowerPoint uh, in, a, in a, an elective class at the college where I was teaching. I was so enamored with it. And obviously I go back and look at some of my slides from 20 years ago and I realize I've come a long way too. Not that I have arrived yet by any stretch of the imagination, but I laugh at some of my old slides, you know, the old blue background and yellow text, you know, and, and, and so forth. But uh, nevertheless, over the years, it's just been something that it's kind of been, become a key part of our ministry. In fact, we sell a chart book uh, at Not By Works Ministries. There's some out on the table. If you'd like to pick one up, those are our gift uh, to you for those of you here at Plum Creek Chapel. Um, but, you know, I, I just like to illustrate things uh, with, with charts. But, of course, there's a risk in using visual aids, uh, which they've come a long way too, right? I can remember as a kid sitting in uh, uh, Sunday school while the teacher was putting stuff up on a flannel graph, you know, uh, or you know, writing on a chalkboard. And for you younger people, a chalkboard is what we call used to call white marker boards. But uh, uh, technology's come a long way. I couldn't help but think during the, the snafu during the worship, I thought, you know, Jesus probably never had a single issue with, with PowerPoint uh, or any kind of worship software while he was preaching, you know? We never had an issue, probably because he didn't use it. But anyway, uh, uh, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. But the, the danger of it is that, uh, you know, sometimes, first of all, I've been accused of going fast, and so when I'm out at conferences, I'll see people taking pictures of the screen, and then they're trying to get their camera out, and I'm like, I'm ready to move on, and I'm thinking, oh, that poor person, they, they missed it, you know? But if you're not careful, people can, well, I mean, that's what I'm thinking. You don't know what goes through my head while I'm up here speaking, Becky. Uh, but, uh, uh, but, uh, but secondly, you know, if, if, if you're not careful, things, people can kind of become immune to what's on the screen. They kind of tune it out, you know, uh, because we're so accustomed these days to seeing people speak or preach or teach with visual aids. So, all that to say, I think what I'm going to do to kind of help keep your attention this morning is, is present these slides in a little bit uh, different way to capture your attention. I'm wondering if it would help if the rest of my slides were presented upside down from here to the end of the message. You think that'll help? Would you notice that? Would that catch your attention? I'm guessing it would. It looks out of place, doesn't it? It looks different, right? It's not the norm compared to what you see on the screen each week. Normally you see it positioned correctly and you can read it and you can understand it. I'm trying to leave this here as long as I can so that you uh, OCD people really get really, un or as you like to call yourselves, CDO people, get really, really, really uncomfortable. Car sick. Yeah, car sick, right, there you go. But No, as, uh, as Christianity grew, its influence on the lost and dying world had the same impact. People noticed. Something was different. It got their attention. 
it was almost as if they were turning the world upside down. And that's the key phrase that we come to here in Acts uh, chapter 17. I'm calling this in the world and not of it. As we continue this journey through the historical record that Luke gives us of the early church, we come to a city called Thessalonica. Paul wrote two letters to the Thessalonians. And there's this famous phrase in this section that I want us to focus on this morning. But before we get to it, let's kind of set the stage with some context. I want to just kind of walk through the passage verse by verse. Then I want to give you basically some principles. Remember this The book of Acts, as we've been saying for months now going through this, this is historical literature, historical narrative. It tells us, uh, it gives us a description of what happened. It's not necessarily prescriptive. So when we draw principles and timeless truths out of it, we've got to validate them by looking uh, at other scriptures and comparing scripture with scripture. And so I think what we see happening here in the early church is an example of the biblical doctrine of separation. And so I'm going to give you three principles of separation here in just a moment but let's just take a look at the text beginning in verse 1 now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews remember last week we talked about how they there was no synagogue and so they went to the river but now they're in a synagogue that was his custom in fact Luke tells us Paul as his custom was went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from uh, the scriptures um you know, we, we talked about the roadmap, roadmap for evangelism last week, and this is that roadmap in practice once again. Uh, you know, Paul understood what he would later write uh, in uh, 56, 57 A.D. on his third missionary journey to the Romans, which he had never visited Rome, but he's writing this letter to them, the book of Romans, his magnum opus, and he said, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. And that means that faith... For those who are lost and need to be saved comes by hearing the word of God, namely the gospel within the word of God. And that's what he's talking about here. So he starts with uh, the scriptures. But I want you to notice right out of the chute here, we we see two groups. Uh, As his custom was, he went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. Have you ever noticed the number of times in the account of the early church that we see this contrast between us and them? We are in the world, but we're not of the world. We're not like them. We need to help share Christ with them so that they can become one of us, but there's a clear distinction between them and us. Luke goes on, as he was reasoning from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. So again, we see this reference to you versus me. I'm preaching something, declaring the good news, verbally articulating the good news, as we looked at a few weeks ago in the meaning of that word, who Christ is. And uh, he's the one who died for the sins of the world. He's the long-awaited Messiah that the Jews had been talking so much about. Well, how did the people respond? Luke tells us some of them were persuaded. Persuaded is a word that indicates they believe the gospel. See, a person gets saved eternally from the penalty of sin 
in an instantaneous moment in time, a punctiliar moment in time, when faith meets the gospel, when they become persuaded that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again for their sins and is the only one who can forgive sin and give them the gift of eternal life. And in that moment, when a person hears and believes that, they're saved. And so often, especially in Luke, or in the book of Acts, which was written by Luke, we see him using the word persuaded. We saw that way back in Acts chapter 2. But notice he says, A great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Now this wasn't a popularity club. This wasn't just them manipulating crowds or people jumping on a bandwagon. This was people who heard and believed the gospel. And then having believed it, they joined with Paul and, and Silas. They became part of the, the group. So now we have you know, them, or you know, they became part of us, them becoming us, right? Uh, and then, but Luke tells us in verse 5, but the Jews who were not persuaded, so not everybody believed, uh, became envious and took some of the evil men from the marketplace. You know, Paul has already been dealing with this, both on his first and second journeys, and he's in his midst of his second journey here. So this was nothing new. Uh, there's always a counter-reaction to the gospel. Something important to remember, by the way, by way of application, is that as we share the gospel, the results are not up to us. It's our duty to share the gospel and to share it correctly and accurately and clearly. Right? That's what our Wednesday night series is all about. Uh, but the results are up to the Holy Spirit. You know, we can't argue someone into the faith. We can't convince someone, you know, that they must receive this gift. A gift forced upon someone is no gift at all. So a gift must be freely offered and freely received, and such it is with uh, the gospel. But some of these unbelieving Jews were not happy with what was taking place. So they took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, they set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. So this was a... A big deal. I mean, this, this is, as we see it time and again, and it escalates until ultimately it ends with Paul's uh, martyrdom. Uh, they were not happy. And so when they didn't find them there, Luke tells us, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city. And they cried out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Their reputation preceded them, in other words. And, you know, they've been out there preaching this craziness about the free gift of salvation, how you can be saved by simply believing in Jesus, and now they're causing uproar here too. They're coming here to do the same thing. See, if you're just another part of the world with no distinction, no uniqueness, no separateness, you can't really turn the world upside down. But it's precisely because the Christians in the early church were different that the world stood up and took notice. Hey, what, what's going on there? These people look different. See, Christians are not supposed to blend in. We're supposed to stand out. This is a principle, as we're going to see in a moment, that, that goes all the way back to Genesis. God's people are always supposed to be unique. Um, I talked last week about the mistaken notion of that, that passage in 2 Corinthians 9, uh, you know, becoming all things to all people. 
doesn't mean we do anything. There are some lines we will draw that contradict Scripture. We can't do something that contradicts Scripture. But we do want to do our best to reach all people. Uh, but it doesn't mean we become like all people. And certainly, Paul and Silas didn't become like all people. They were just like everybody else. They wouldn't have tried to kill them. Right? Those who have turned the world upside down. It's sad but true. Here we are 2,000 years later, and how many churches are really turning the world upside down? I think if the record, historical record of our day were to be written, it would say something about the world turning the church upside down. That's really what's happening. That's the reason most churches <coughs> equivocate on the gospel. They don't talk about the return of Christ. They, they blend in. You know, I've often said through the years, um, especially when I was younger, that, you know, I feel like I have enough knowledge, experience, advisors, and good counsel and people that if, if I had enough money, we could overnight, because I've seen it happen again and again and again, especially when I was down in Texas and places with, you know, big population centers, we could overnight build a church with 10,000 people. And I've seen it happen. I've seen a wealthy benefactor uh, give his son half a million dollars to plant a church. So he's, he bought billboards all up and down major interstates in the city at $10,000 a month, built a multi-million-dollar you know, uh, building, uh, and sent out postal cards and offered a free car giveaway the first day. Everybody came and threw their hat if you came in, you put you, you got a little coupon put in the thing, and the first Sunday they had several thousand people there, and then they grew. They had it was a it was a Universal Studios style production every week. See, that's an example of the world turning the church upside down. But the historical record in Acts is that it's the church that's supposed to be turning the world upside down. Right? They go on and say, Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Well, there you have it. These dirty, rotten Christians, they're acting contrary to the world. How dare they? They're supposed to act like the world. Reminds me of what Jesus warned uh, in Matthew 10 when he sent out the disciples. He said, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. See, you either receive Jesus or you reject him. That's really the only two options. Not everybody is hostile toward the gospel, at least outwardly. Spiritually, you might say they're hostile to the gospel until they believe it. But not everybody's out there antagonizing Christians and speaking ill against the church. But the fact is every single person has either done one of two things. They've either believed the gospel or they've not believed the gospel. There's no middle ground. And the early church understood that, and they were out there trying to get people uh, to believe the gospel by sharing it correctly and accurately, and unashamedly, by the way. And then uh, Luke uh, sums up, and they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. See, it's, it's much easier to complain in a crowd. You ever notice that? Someone gets upset about something. The first thing they do is they start calling their friends. Can you believe this? Did you see this? You know what happened to me. You know what this happened. And they start to stir up people uh, when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason, 
and the rest, they let them go. So it's nice to have friends sometimes that can help support you, provide finances, and help you get out of the way. So the story of Paul and Thessalonica and the uproar of the mob demonstrates this important principle of us versus them, that we are in the world but not of the world. We're supposed to be different, unique. You know, as I mentioned, you go all the way back to Genesis and, you know, what did, what did God's people do, you know, when they came out of, say, Egypt in, in Exodus and they went into the Promised Land? Well, they were supposed to set up an outpost as a representation of God's glory and to spread the good news about Yahweh in the Promised Land. And they were supposed to be so different and so unique that all the pagan nations surrounding them would see that and would be attracted to it, and they would say, tell us more about your God. And unfortunately, as the historical record attests, they did just the opposite. They went in and started intermingling with the pagan lands around them, intermarrying with the pagan lands around them, putting up statues and altars to these pagan gods. So I want us to just take a closer look at this principle of in the world but not of it and just give you three simple principles of separation. The first principle is this. God's people are holy. The world is unholy. God's people are holy. The world is unholy. So God created man in his own image in perfection, sinless perfection. We were created separate. Holy just means separate, distinct, one of a kind. We had free will, however, and of course we know what happened, and we'll talk about that just in just a second. But in Genesis 1.27 we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female. He created them. The word image uh, there in Hebrew uh, would have been perfectly understood by the children of Israel in the wilderness as Moses revealed the first five books of the Bible to them at that time under the inspiration of the Spirit because ancient Near Eastern kings in that day would set up images of themselves throughout their kingdom in order to bring attention to themselves and bring themselves glory. God was essentially saying here, as the highest pinnacle of creation, mankind, the crown jewel of creation, you are my images. So when we talk about the image of God in man, it's not like we are God. I'm going to diagram that for you here in a second. But we are made according to an image that God designed. And when we sinned, that image became tarnished and we no longer reflected the glory of God. But we can be made right with God once again by faith. That's what justified means. You know, Abraham, we read about in Genesis 15, believed God and was declared righteous. That's how he became right with God once again. But in our sinless state, until we believe the gospel, we are unholy. We're not right with God, right? But this image of God in man, I think I've shown this before in some of our contexts, probably not uh, from the pulpit, but some of you may have seen this before. But to help you kind of understand what we're talking about, you've got the triune God, created the world, spoke the world into existence, and when he got to the highest pinnacle of creation, he took a little more time. He, he said... You know, let's let's think about this for example. Let us create man in our image. You know, us a reference to the Trinity there. You know, it doesn't take a lot of time to create 
plants and trees and animals and other living things. It doesn't take any time at all to create cats. You just go, cat, boom, there it is. And it's just, then you regret it from the moment you did it. But anyway, um, but anyway, when it came to mankind, right, God said, oh, let us make man in our image. That's a big change in the pattern that we see in Genesis 1 and 2. And so what that meant is we're going to create a pattern. So God, the triune God, created this pattern, this image, according to which mankind would be made. It was a, a pattern, a mold, if you will. It was God's divine design that would then, you know, we would then represent him throughout the world. And uh, we actually uh, talked about this a few weeks ago on Wednesdays in our Q&A, our theological Q&A. Someone asked a question, and I was prompted to bring this up. So this should be fresh in some of your minds. But uh, the image of God in man is not difficult to see when we compare us, human beings, with God. And, and, the, and the unique things about us that he chose to give us and didn't give any other created thing. That's why... As I'm talking about in my new book, in the Gender Surrender chap chapter, the attack on gender is so demonic because it cuts right to the heart of the image of God in men. What did we say? Male and female, he created them. That's part of who we are as human beings. And so uh, when we think about the image of God, we, we can see that God, for example, is sovereign. God is righteous. God is just. These are just attributes of God that are eternal, that we see in scripture he's powerful he's love he's creative he's spirit he has eternal life uh, in the same way this pattern that he created according to which he created his crown jewel mankind where god is sovereign we have volition free will where god is righteous we have morality where god is just we have justice where god is wise we have intellect and logic we're not god we're not omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. We're not God, but we have corresponding attributes that are made according to the image of God. Um, God is powerful. We have certain abilities. There are things we can do that, you know, a cat will never do, right? I'll just leave it at that. Um, God is love. We have relationships, right? God is creative. We have expression. We love to create. Satan uh, is ultimately trying to create life. It's the one frontier he hasn't conquered yet. And the transhumanists are getting ever so close to doing that. God is spirit. We are spiritual beings, unlike any other created being. You know, I, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this again because I got in trouble when I said it Wednesday. But the thing that distinguishes mankind from any other created being is that we have a soul. When an oak tree dies, you just burn it in the fire and it doesn't have an immaterial aspect that lives on forever. Neither do animals. That's why they're not made in the image of God. God breathed into us the breath of life. So when we die, we never cease to be conscious, right? To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord for believers. Uh, Luke 16, Jesus describes an unbeliever who had died. Body goes to the grave. Where does the soul go? In torment, right? So we are spiritual beings, and we can have eternal life through faith in Christ. But all of this became corrupted because of sin uh, and original righteousness and holiness and the distinction that mankind and God's creation is supposed to have was lost so that we, like all of creation, were under the curse of sin and began to look more and more like the world. 
God's people are holy, the world is unholy. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's that image bearer that's supposed to bring glory to God and attract attention to Him. It's now tarnished. We're not bringing glory to God. Um, it, sin separates us. That's what death is in Scripture. Death just means separation. We see that in Genesis 3. He drove out the man. And he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and, at a, and a flaming sword which turned away every way to guard the way to the tree of life. But through Christ, that relationship can be restored. He himself is our peace who has made both one and broken down the middle wall of separation. Talking here about the separation between Jew and Gentile, but basically he's saying we're, we're all in the same boat. Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. Apart from faith in Christ, you're separate from God. Hebrews says, we have such a high priest who is fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. I mean, you think Jesus could have paid for your sins and for mine on the cross if he had become just like all the other sinners? <laughs> no, it was because he was a spotless lamb that he was able to take our sins upon him. And it's through the perfect God-man that we can be restored by faith to a right relationship with God. We're no longer separated we're reconciled colossians 1 you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works yet he now he has reconciled if we place our faith in christ we have peace with god we are justified declared righteous by faith and we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ so the idea of separation runs from genesis to revelation in scripture it's a it's a story of unity to enmity back to unity but here's the crucial point. Once we've been made right with God by faith alone in Christ alone, then we're part of the family of God, and the world is once again separated from us just like it is separated from God. That's always been God's plan. Whether it was Adam or Noah, did, did everybody get on the ark? Or just eight righteous people? The church today has been called to reflect God's glory and stand out in a pagan, separated, alienated world. And that's why God told the children of Israel what he told them when they crossed into the Jordan River and entered Canaan. I mentioned that a moment ago, but it might be helpful to actually see what he said because in today's nomenclature, in today's kinder, softer, gentler God where the, 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 the world has turned the church upside down, people don't read these verses very often. Uh, he didn't tell them to go into the promised land and blend in, mix and mingle, and become like them. Listen to what he said. Make no covenant with them, make, nor make any marriages with them, for they will turn your sons away. <laughs> you know, I'm warning you. They didn't believe him. You are a holy people, chosen. I've chosen you to be a people for myself, a special treasure above all the people's on the face of the earth. Again, it's that us and them contrast that just as we saw 1,500 years later in Acts 17. I mean, how can anyone read this foundational principle from the law and not see that there is a fundamental principle of separation? What about Leviticus? Consecrate yourselves, make yourselves distinct, and be holy for I, Lord, your, and Lord your God. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and, you have, se and have separated you from the peoples. And this is not just an Old Testament thing, it's repeated in the New Testament. Peter said, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you 
may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I mean, how can we be in the middle of darkness and try to proclaim the gospel if we're not light? The minute we proclaim the light, the darkness is gone, right? So you, there's this separation. In 2 Corinthians 6, what fellowship, Paul says, has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Satan? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Therefore, come out from among them and be ye separate. So the first thing we need to understand is that God's people are holy. The world is unholy. But also, God's people are healthy and the world is unhealthy. See, what we forget sometimes is that God really does know best. He knows that a sin-stricken world is a dangerous place. It's unhealthy. And He's protecting us. And when we have fellowship with the world, we're putting ourselves in harm's way. Uh, Ephesians 5, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Unfruitful here is uh, a word that means unprofitable. So let's read that again. Have no fellowship with the unprofitable works of darkness. They're not helpful. They're hurtful. A fruit tree that does not bear fruit is sick. It's unhealthy. The world is sick and needs a Savior. Jesus said if the world was healthy, it wouldn't need a physician. He said those who are well need have no need of a physician, but it's those who are sick. So we don't want to have close fellowship with the world uh, because uh, we might revert to our sick ways too. Right? Uh, Paul said evil company corrupts good morals. Evil behavior is always detrimental. Don't ever believe the lie that if you spend time with evil people, you'll help them change. It's just the opposite. Right? Proverbs says, The righteous should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked leads them astray. God's people are healthy. The world is unhealthy. Proverbs 13, 20, He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. So the second thing we need to remember about the biblical principle of separation is that God's people are healthy and the world is unhealthy. So we've seen God's people are holy, the world is unholy. God's people are healthy, the world is unhealthy. But finally, and this is important to remember, God's people are happy and the world is unhappy. God's people are happy and the world is unhappy. Worldliness always leads to unpleasantness, to sorrow, to hardship, to difficulties, to a dead-end street. You want to find happiness and contentment through the world? Good luck. Uh, you may find temporary pleasure for a while, but it's, it's going to end in, in sorrow. But the Bible says if we remain distinct and separate from the world while living within this world where we are, as God's holy people, we're going to be happy. What did Psalm 1 say? Blessed, it's the Hebrew word ashray, it means happy. In fact, if you look it up in the standard Hebrew dictionary, the first definition for ashray is happy. <laughs> so, happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. See? So, who is happy? Those who walk not with the ungodly, those who do not stand with sinners, those who do not sit with the scornful. Notice the progression, by the way, this has often been pointed out, but... You know, it starts by walking. And then you, you camp out there for a while and stand. And eventually you sit down. And you become just like the world. 
friendship with the world makes you an enemy with God, and no one can be happy if you make yourself an enemy of God. James says, do you, want to, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Don't forget in the Bible there's a distinction between being in part of the family of God and being in fellowship with God. We become part of the family of God by faith alone, as I've said many times. But even as believers, the Bible characterizes us sometimes as you know, walking in darkness when we're sinning and not walking in the Spirit by you know, being an enemy of God, by being a son of the devil. In fact, Jesus even called Peter Satan himself at one point. I mean, how do you think that would feel? You know, God says, you're Satan. Well, wow, that's about the worst thing God could say to anybody, right? But it doesn't mean Peter wasn't saved. Just in that moment, in, in his daily living, he was not walking in close fellowship with the Lord. Um, God's people are happy. The world is unhappy. Uh, that's the principle of separation. God is holy, healthy, and happy. And if you're with God, you're going to be those things, right? So what is a friend anyway? Uh, we need to define our terms. Biblically, a friend is those who share a biblical worldview, those whose affections, attitudes, and shared experiences all flow from a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, the world and the Bible have vastly different ideas about friendship. The world says friendship is anyone like you, that you grow fond of, that you enjoy being around, that you have things, worldly things in common with. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says friendship is based on a common worldview of understanding who God is, who Christ is, and who you are in Christ. So the biblical record is that we're supposed to be friendly with everybody. We're supposed to be kind and gracious and display the fruit of the Spirit, but we're not supposed to be friends with the world, at least not the way the Bible talks about it. So how can we change the world? How can we turn the world upside down? How can we fulfill the Great Commission if the world sees nothing different in us than the world? Talking to the disciples early on in his ministry, and the crowds that were sitting with them, and the Pharisees and scribes that were lurking in the background on the hill, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? You're the light of the world, as we sung. Uh, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Image of God and man. We're the image bearers. We're supposed to represent His glory. Unfortunately, uh, we become conformed to the world, and we can't do that. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. A couple of paraphrases of this verse, I think, really illustrate what the Greek is trying to say here. One paraphrase says, Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Or the J.B. Phillips paraphrase goes like this, and, and you know any paraphrase by a guy named J.B. has got to be pretty good, right? The J.B. Phillips says, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. See, God's people are holy and the world is unholy. God's people are healthy and the world is unhealthy. God's people are happy true happiness, and the world is unhappy. So if we return to the text, 
The world said those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. If you're just another part of the world with no distinction, no uniqueness, no separateness, you can't turn the world upside down. It's precisely because Christians were different in that day that the world stood up and took notice. We're not supposed to blend in. We're supposed to stand out. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of it. So what's the takeaway? Well, uh, I heard it put this way one time, and we used to say this to our kids a lot, to greater and lesser effect through the years, but uh, you'll never become like the people you don't hang around. You'll never become like the people you don't hang around. So ask yourself, are you turning the world upside down? Or is the world turning you upside down? That's the takeaway. That's the question. Are you turning the world upside down or is the world turning you upside down? Let's pray. Father, thank you for just this example of really what the ideal church looks like as we see in the pages of Scripture, the early church living out their commission and following you and seeking to win a lost world. Lord, I pray that you would raise up Christians today and churches today that will continue this legacy, even though we see so many attacks on the church today and we've drifted so far from our moorings. Lord, for a time such as this, help us to be a church that truly turns the world upside down. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.